Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. We're going to start off this year. This is kickoff Sunday, and so um, that means we're kicking off all of our ministries during the course of this week. Uh, and next, over the next uh, short season, hopefully you're all going to be plugged in, blessed, excited every single place that you go, uh, talking about it all the time. Yeah? Yes, for sure. Just not during the service. Uh, to help us kick off this morning, though, we're going to start off this season with a special announcement and an introduction. And so to be able to help me with that, I'm, I'm going to ask Pastor Pete to come up here. Let's ask, let's give him a hand, too. Yeah, just so, there we go. Brings a smile to his face. It's exciting. So, Pete. Well, good morning, church. <laughs> Man, it's so amazing to be filled up this morning, and for people visiting with us this morning, welcome to our church, and we do have a very special announcement uh, for you this morning, and I, I wanted also at this time invite up a couple of our elders, Pastor Matt and uh, Josh Piper. Um, this morning, I have a special announcement regarding an addition to our pastoral team here at Salem Heights Church, and before we share uh, what a pastor is in the New Testament... One is translated shepherd, which means that they care for the sheep, the people of the church. The second is an elder, which means that they are spiritually mature, meeting a specific set of biblical qualifications we find in 1 Timothy and Titus. The third is the word translated overseer, which means they are gifted and called to fulfill several duties on behalf of the church. Roll team, so that we can effectively shepherd the individuals that God has entrusted to our care as leaders. Over the last several years, it has become evident to our leadership team that God was equipping another gifted individual for the role of pastor. Not only did it meet the biblical qualifications, but it was increasingly obvious that our church family was already viewing him as a shepherd. And so this morning, I'm excited to share on behalf of our leadership team that after a season of prayer and consideration, we believe that God has developed, gifted, and called A.J. Acker to be officially recognized as one of the pastors of Salem Heights Church. If we were a basketball team, we just got our center. (laughs) We'd like to invite Pastor Matt to pray for AJ as he enters this new role of pastor of worship. Let's pray together. Awesome, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. What a blessing to be with this young man. Thank you for bringing him here all those years ago in the college ministry where he met Amanda. Uh, What a great husband he's been. And thank you for him being a great daddy to his children, to, to Jameson, Lily, Hattie, to Colby. Thank you for the example that he's been here at this church of a man who cares for your sheep, a man who loves your word, has a passion for it, a man who loves to lead people in worship. But he shepherded this team here, and he shepherded these people here in such a way, Lord God, that you're glorified. So we thank you this morning that we can come to you and and know that everything he's doing is for your glory and that we acknowledge that. Bless him. Bless him in this role you already have as he's been doing it. And now as as we officially make it before these folks that that he is this role, we give you thanks. Mm -hmm. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks for me. Awesome morning. Um, we're going to have uh, one more just small announcement uh, before we start in our, our uh, study of Luke 15. But uh, some of you received these on the way in. Did you get those? Yeah? All right. Wayne did. Uh, see, Wayne, if you need to uh, polish up on your uh, QR codes right there, you can uh, use his. Um, but on the way in, you would have gotten this. This is the information about the campaign that we're doing. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do our last two installments of that, and then we're asking you to join us uh, and participate in this campaign that's going on. And remember, it's not just about a building and one moment. Uh, we are talking about something God's already been doing, and we're anticipating he's going to continue to do. And so this is one moment in many that we're praying that uh, we'll continue to see here at Salem Heights. On the inside there, a family meeting. There's a lot of questions that have been posed. You can go on there and find out some questions. Uh, you can uh, punch in that, uh, well, not punch in the QR code. Uh, do whatever you do uh, with a QR code. That thing, register it there. Uh, you can have uh, your question represented uh, as well. And then the commitment night is a separate QR code. So uh, we want you to be at both if you so desire. If you have questions and you say, I, I want to be able to meet the elders, ask some questions of them, that night is designed for you. We do want you to be able to come, not only ask questions, but this is a family time. And so we're going to continually be asking you the question, are you coming? We're asking all those who call Salem Heights Church home to be there. We're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And for a couple of weeks, we're going to be um, kicking off our year with the theme, From a Clenched Fist to a Bowed Head. I don't know if you have noticed in our society, but there are some irritable people. What is it that has caused them to clench their fists? I was uh, doing some studying uh, on a separate issue, uh, and from time to time what I'll do is I'll check in with rabbis who are well-versed in the Talmud or some uh, observations that are historic uh, when you're looking at the Old Testament, just to see what is it that they believe uh, each passage teaches. And they have some uh, also useful stories, as rabbis consistently do. And in one, uh, Rabbi Dusty Kloss writes about something that would happen every single Christmas season, he said. He would, uh, his dad would get invited down to the, the school to read a story. And so he would read a story called Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. Now, it's a whole long story, but this trickster named Herschel was always called into a situation to help people out of uh, something that was a problem for them. And there were these goblins that were bothering a little village. And one day, as uh, uh, they were trying to light Hanukkah candles, as he was trying to get one lit, uh, these goblins kept snuffing it out. And so they called in Herschel the trickster, and he came barging into the room with a great big jar of pickles. And he's munching on a pickle and he sees the goblin and the goblin's all green and he is envious and irritable. And he looks at him and he says, go ahead, have a pickle. I got plenty. And the goblin reaches his hand into the jar and he just with a greedy face starts grabbing as many pickles as he can and he clenches his fists. But then he is stuck in the jar. He's stuck in the jar and Herschel as the goblin's trying to figure out how to get that off of his fists 
wanders over, lights the Hanukkah candle, thwarts uh, the goblin's whole purpose for the evening. The goblin says, what kind of magic is this? This is crazy magic. And Herschel admits, well, it is strong, but it's not magic. He revealed to him, what's holding you in there is your greed, your irritation. You wanted all of these things. You wanted to do something to me. You were trying to make a point and your hand is stuck. If you just let go of that, the magic will be over. Well, when he realizes that he's been stuck by his own greed, he stomps his feet so hard that he shatters into a thousand pieces. Herschel wins the day. The conclusion of this, the rabbi looks around and says, we live in a culture of clenched fists. Live in a culture of clenched fists. This morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, and I just want us to notice one thing in this famous parable. Jesus is highlighting something that happens at the very end, and he highlights it by focusing on what it is that the Father actually wants to accomplish. Focusing on celebration and joy and the opposite of that that is observed in one of his own children. Let's take a look at this parable and unpack it a little bit this morning. Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. Because of the length of it this morning, I'm going to ask you to sit. You can read reverently from where you're sitting. Amen? Let's listen to this, hear this story, and we'll walk through it together. It says this. Verse 11, he also said, Jesus already has given them two parables that are like in kind. He advances it here. He also said, a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he had squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country. And he had nothing. When he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, he longed to eat the fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, literally a term that's used of a, a boxer that's been punched too many times and wakes up on the mat. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Mark those words. Now his older brother, older son, was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And so he summoned one of the servants, questioning him what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry. He didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving away many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me a goat so that we could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, notice the tone, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you believe that's still the father's heart today? I want us to notice three things. The first thing that I want you to notice out of this passage um, in its context here is that God desires that we are one heart with him. I want you to notice a couple of things that are happening here at the very beginning, and I want you to read it on your own. There is a man who has a whole bunch of sheep, and one of them is lost. In just a verse or two, we find out that the sheep has been lost, and the master, his heart focused on reclaiming that sheep, has gone out, found that sheep, and brought him back in. One or two verses. But on your own, I want you to notice how many verses are then dedicated to him, putting the sheep on his shoulders, going back to the house, rejoicing in his heart, calling all of his friends together in order that they might celebrate, and he draws them together with so much exciting excitement. It says he calls out to his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 Righteous people who don't need repentance. He gives us the emphasis of that first one. He then moves quickly on to another picture. There's a woman. She has uh, what is a, a picture of dowry and value and all of these things in this little crown that's on her head. She loses one of the coins. It's a, a valuable asset, not just because financially what it would mean to her or to the family. It represents uh, love. It represents value to her extended family. Uh, it represents so many things. When she loses it, she realizes she has been the caretaker of something that is precious, that identifies her value to other people. She sweeps the entire house. She searches all over for the coin, but she does that in just a couple of verses. She finds the coin and then the rest of that parable focuses on, she's found the coin, it has immense value, it reminds her of who she is. She calls all of her friends together. She gathers the people to celebrate. Everybody, are brought, all the folks are brought into the home in order for them to be able to see the coin and rejoice with her. I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Heaven Angels, friends, all brought to the table. Now we come to the third story and he extends the story, but still only a half of it. Really a third of this is focused on the son who goes out and squanders everything. But then we see the father's heart as he is at the end of the road waiting for the son and he rejoices as he comes home. He comes home, there is singing, dancing, a fattened calf, literally one animal that was set aside for special guests if they would arrive suddenly. Set aside just for eating and celebrating. And he says, go and kill that. We're going to rejoice that he's home. The rest, over half of this parable that is here, is about the second son. Who, unlike the friends, unlike heaven, unlike angels, stands on the outside Refusing to come in. 
The whole point is, Jesus is looking at these people saying, God wants you to be one heart with him. Christina and I had an opportunity to go to uh, Minto Island Growers. I don't know if you've been there before. Uh, amazing little uh, food stand, a cart that they have. It's all just uh, from farm to table type stuff. My daughter was working there. And they had these events from time to time, and one of them was exceedingly weird. It was this group of traveling uh, performers. Uh, they didn't uh, talk themselves, but they had all of this noise and everything that was going on. They were all miming out their version of the Odyssey. It was chaos out there. All of these whales and weird things that are coming on. And there's just honks and squeaks and stuff coming from trumpets and weird contraptions on the side. It was really fun. And as all these weird things are going on, this one guy is lost. And as he is going about on the stage, he's trying to open a door or do something. And you can see the treasure, the thing that he is seeking, uh, the individual that he is trying to help behind this one door. And all of a sudden, all of the kids that are in the audience begin to shout out. Have you ever been in a, a moment like this? And like, no, 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 it's over there. Oh, watch out, watch out for that whale. And they're, they're shouting from the audience. They're trying to help this mime who is acting like the fool. But they're trying to get them engaged so that you would care about the things that are going on there and we want to help. And then he would begin to respond a little bit based on their shouting. So the kids are getting louder and louder. And the whole implication of this drama was they were trying to get the people in the audience to be of one heart with the people that were up on the stage so that you would buy into what was about to happen. This is what God the Father is wanting to do. He wants us to be one heart with him. In these parables and in this moment, Jesus is highlighting some stories. He's causing you to lean in a little bit to find out what is happening next. And his desire is that like children, we would begin to say, no, 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 do this, go that direction. Don't do that, come over here. We'd be shouting at the actors in this scene. He wants us to value what he values. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son who comes home again. By the way, the implication of why would he rejoice, so of course his son, but as Jesus is telling this story, it would have been evident to everybody after his death, burial, and resurrection, it's not you who has returned back to the Father. He sees his son coming up there. The rejoicing he has is that when you give your life to Christ, he doesn't see you in all the filth, he sees Jesus in all his glory. He receives him home and says, this is the way it should be. Value what he values, work, where he works, in a field, in a home, even in the far country God is at work, amen? And he wants us to celebrate what he celebrates. That's the emphasis. The friends, the neighbors, the angels, all of heaven are celebrating and it begs the question, what would stop you? He wants us to be one heart with him, but a second thing I want you to notice in here is that a wayward heart will produce clenched fists. Wayward heart will produce clenched fists. The response that the older son says, now the older son was in the field as he came out and he heard the music and the dancing. He summoned one of the servants. What does this mean? Your brother's here. Verse 28, and he became angry. There are some things that get lost a little bit in translation as uh, some commentators are commenting on the original language. They say this isn't just a moment where he just has a snap bad day. When it says he became angry, it's an overflow of anger that has been building and building and building and building and all of a sudden it erupts. 
This is a bad case of spiritual acne, all right? Sorry this morning if you are battling with that. But here it is. This eruption we know is going to happen at some time and nobody wants it to happen in public. Angry. Bothered. And it's not just angry, but this is shout at the sky, clench your fists, irritation. He gives a whole list of reasons. But the fact is he's been bothered by the other son's ability to go while he stays back. I have a right way to face the world. John Gerstner commenting on this passage is highlighting the fact that uh, the, the younger son gets received back in by just repentance and understanding the value of the father. The older son stands on the outside, not because he's also not invited in, because he's been doing all the right things and he's mad that he's not getting recognized for it. Gerstner's comment on this is, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. We do good things and we get irritated that God doesn't recognize them more for the good works. And we are so good, we begin to compromise and are compelled to be irritated at God. The Spectator in 1987, as they were getting ready also for a, a Christmas season. So there's an irritation that hangs out inside of our culture. This is the observation of somebody that was secular, but it sounds so much like a commentary from the scripture. It says, for the believers in perfectibility, that is those people who believe that you can actually do enough good things uh, that you can change the world. The believers in perfectibility and progress the continuing shortcomings of humanity are due to the malice or ignorance or superstition of opponents. It'll eventually be defeated. It's not due to anything inherent in the human condition. They don't believe we're actually the problem. It's just other ideals. Such believers do not confine themselves to science. Politics, too, will provide the solution. Communists, fascists, libertarians alike believe that if only their theory were accepted and enacted, all would be well. They think that there is a correct analysis of society as if society were a machine and you only had to be clever enough to remove the spanner in the works for it to function perfectly. Because of these beliefs, the world lives in a ferment of extravagant hope and bitter disappointment. Every day, politicians promise health and wealth and peace. Newspapers announce a cure for cancer. They demand an end to crime or crash program to stop poverty or sickness or cruelty to children. And every day, politicians, newspapers are forced to admit that people are still poor and ill, still fighting one another and dying, desperately blame their enemies for such wickedness. God, if you only would get on the right program. If you would only support me in what I'm doing, that we wouldn't have these issues. We wouldn't have younger sons running off with all these finances. Do you know how hard it was to make up the difference? The older son is saying. You know what? If you have this celebration, he's just gonna run off again. You're just gonna be doing things that will support bad habits. That's what he's thinking. He's irritated because you haven't taught him a lesson. You haven't forced him to kneel. I didn't get to see him grovel. It's his bad thinking. 
He doesn't think that it is a human affliction. He doesn't think that everybody is caught up in the same type of sin. He thinks, I got a group of people who don't think the right way. They're not doing what I'm doing. You can see it written all over his responses. Just looking up on uh, one of those places that, uh, like iStock, you type in the word angry or irritated. I want you to see a picture that comes up. That's angry, right? What are they doing with their hands? Closed fist. You just type in the word angry and immediately we're shaking our fists at heaven, at other people. We're shaking our fists at the folks that are around us. I want you to notice something about this uh, little kid at a birthday party. All right? Let me just ask you a couple of questions really quickly because I think it's buried even in the context of this passage. Why is it that he is not enjoying the group? Now, those of us that have kids can guess, right? They're playing with a toy that he wants to play with. They might be his toys, and he's irritated that they're playing with him and not letting him in. It's possible that somebody got something that he didn't get, but it's written all over his face. He will not join those kids. What do you think he's actually trying to communicate? Does he want justice? Is he irritated about not getting what he, has he been attacked? But let me ask you this, and this is the key. What do you actually think about this kid making his statement and his stand? What do you think about them? You think that's mature? Oh, I'm really proud of that kid. Yeah, that's going to be one. He's going to go far, that guy. (laughs) He might be able to make his point. He might even be right. But the irritation written on his face and the way that he's going about it is not the way to be able to win a parent's heart and be able to move forward. He has to get addressed in his own sin before he can handle whatever has just happened at the party. What do you think of him is the question we ought to be asking as we look in the mirror. Clenched fists will cut us off from family events. I want you to notice this. It says he became angry. Look, uh, verse 29, I have been slaving away many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. He takes a look at all of his works and he says, look at these good works that I have done. Is he happy about it? Well, you don't use the word slaving away if you've enjoyed walking with the Father. Good works, by the way, do not equal godliness. Good friends. He says, and I've never disobeyed your orders, and yet you've never given me a goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. Why is it that he didn't have a goat and the other son did? Well, one son wants to be there with the father, recognizes the value of the father, and says, Father, I need to be in submission to you. The other son has been walking alongside the father the entire time, but has never had a submissive heart. They both were far from him. Good friends don't equal godliness. Good works don't equal godliness, but also good financial habits. So this son of yours has come and has devoured your assets with prostitutes and you've slaughtered the fattened calf for him. You're just gonna give him bad practices. Now I want you to hear me. As a believer, you do need to have good works, good friends, and good financial habits. Okay? Don't shy away from those things. A little bit of Dave Ramsey would help out a lot of folks, okay? But he is not the one that's gonna welcome you into heaven. 
Good financial habits do not equal godliness, but they do attach themselves to godly people. Good friends do not equal godliness, but they do attach themselves to godly people. Good works do not equal godliness, but they naturally follow those who are following the Father. Amen? The older brother is looking out from the outside. He says, well, you might be able to celebrate, Father, but I've got standards. And there are many believers who are looking at God the same way. I want you to notice, neither brother was thinking about the father. They were thinking about themselves, and both were miserable. A wayward heart will produce clenched fists, but the final thing I want you to see is that God's heart is eager to celebrate. He says, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. Remember the other stories calling my friends, all of heaven's rejoicing. I call up all of those people that are close to me, my family, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. I call up all of these folks, we kill the fatted calf, celebration is on his heart. Yes, there's a mess in the story. Yes, there are things still in, in uh, process in the world around them. They don't live in a perfect place in this storyline. There still is a far country. But while the far country was existing, this one came home and got it right. And he said, we had to celebrate. We had to. Rejoicing is required. One pastor said it this way, there is no more perfect and wonderful story that gives us the whole meaning of the gospel than this. If there's no dance, if there's no music, if there's no joy in your life, it's because either like the prodigal, you are letting your badness get in the way of God or like the Pharisee, you're letting your goodness get in the way. You're trying to control him one way or the other. I don't care how religious you are. If there is no joy, there's no dance, you still don't get it. There should be joy in the Christian life. Amen? Amen. It should be written on our faces that there is a different hope that we have. It's possible, though that we could be looking at something that is profound and still miss the point. There was a guy that was walking along and he saw this street sign. And on the street sign it said, talking dog for sale. So he goes into the house and there sits on this little pedestal, this dog. And it says talking dog for sale right at the bottom of it. So he looks at the dog and he asks him a question. He'd like to see, because he actually respond. He says, well, so what have you been doing with your life? And the dog looks at him and he says, well, you know what? I spent a bunch of years in the Alps. I was just rescuing people that would get lost off of the trails, he says. And then I spent some time serving my country in Iraq, he says. And now I just go down to the old folks' home and I read to old timers. The guy's flabbergasted. He's having a conversation with a dog. He's shocked. He looks at the owner. He says, why in the world would you ever get rid of this dog? And the guy says, because he's a liar. He's never done any of those things. It is possible to be fundamentally right and yet miss out on great blessing. Miss the point. This year we're going to ask you to join us in what God has called us to do. As a church, we're asking you to celebrate with us. We want you to value what God values. We want you to work where God is at work. We want you to celebrate what he celebrates. But also from time to time in here, in this place, you might hear questions like, are you coming? And it's our prayer that your answer will be yes and amen. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would help us. Uh, help us to see in this parable, not the other people that are around us or somebody else that we think this might be pointing towards, but our own heart. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to respond differently, that we might be captivated not with uh, just our own sin, but also, Father, the areas of our own righteousness that have become a hang-up for us. We want to see the world around us a certain way. We want them to respond to us in a certain way. We have all of these standards, and some of them are yours, but some of them, Father, come right directly from our own heart, our desire to measure somebody else and have them bow down, not to you, but to us. We ask first that you'd forgive us. Father, help us to let go of those standards that are not yours. Not to let go of standards altogether, but to follow your heart, doing things your way, focused on what it is you would have us be about. Father, we pray that you would fill up our lack. Cause us to start with rejoicing in those things that need to be celebrated. We pray that you would cause us to be filled with delight as we follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.